Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello and welcome to this week's The Banker Midweek podcast. I'm Kimberly Long, Asia Editor, and as our regular host Liz Lumley is currently attending the Building Resilience and Managing Risk in Financial Services event in Singapore, I'll be taking over chairing duties. I'm joined today by Joey McKnight, editor of The Banker, and Alia Shibley, the banker's new reporter. Thank you both for joining. Yeah, Thanks, super Kim. excited. So to begin with, we've got some stories from the Banker website and one that caught my attention was, should we be optimistic about sustainable bonds? And this was written by contributors to the website. So we've got Dr. Violetta Norwat, who is Associate Professor at ESCP Business School, and Tomasz Valkovich, who is Senior Manager at Deloitte MCS. And they've pointed out after many years of growth, the 2022 issuance of sustainable bonds um, suffered its first year on year drop across major categories, including green, social sustainability and sustainability linked bonds. Despite this slowdown, we expect the market to return to growth due to a number of structural support factors. And they reference the Paris Agreement targets and how important they are. And I just thought this was an interesting place to start. There's so much talk around ESG and sustainability. Are sustainable bonds taking off? Do we think the market there's an appetite for it? Or are we seeing that they're struggling? What do you think, Joy? Uh, well, I think you have to put it into context of the markets in general. And 2022 was a very difficult year across the, the capital markets, mm. across the board. So there was a lot of contraction. So I think you need to see these st statistics in light of how the whole market was performing. Um, and I do believe, like I agree uh, with the contributors in the sense that, you know, there is so much that needs to be done, so much change, so much transition mm. that needs to be done to a net zero carbon emissions world, for example, um, that really, you know, for me, it, those sustainability bonds, et cetera, are just going to grow. Uh, we had some great in our deals of the year this year, we mm. had some really interesting sustainability, but also ESG bonds, especially mm. around the S mm. and ESG, the social aspect and stuff. So there was some really innovative new structures in terms of bonds, et cetera, around um, uh, gendered linked uh, metrics. So obviously, you know, the, the mm. borrower would pay more. Um, if mm. they, they didn't hit their targets. And some of the targets are, are you know, pretty substantial. Um, or they would pay less in terms of paying the, the bonds, the mm. cost of the bonds. So I do think that, you know, the, they've emerged. They've gone from almost zero to like, you know, 100 and very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I'm not surprised there has been a bit of a, uh, a downturn, in, especially within the market conditions. But I just think there's just so much more to do that we will really need to see. Um, uh, increase again and uh, yeah I mean I was wondering as well with this is that is it that maybe what we're seeing now is actually ESG is almost less of a separate entity it's becoming so embedded into so many different aspects of banking now that actually maybe if we're defining things as being ESG specific actually you're missing out on the ESG elements that may be being incorporated into other bonds mm. Well, that could be true, I guess. But I think a lot of corporations, for example, mm. sovereigns, they want to prove their ESG credentials. Yeah, true. And so that's why they're really looking at these specific uh, instruments, really, to show that. Um, but I, I, I take your point because mm. I do agree. Yes, I think 
now they're just embedding so much more of mm. it uh, into other other uh, instruments as well. Yeah. Um, but I do think there still needs to be that spotlight. Yeah. Um, in order for us to hit those uh, targets that uh, you know many companies and sovereigns have set. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So now to take another look at another story, we're going to look across to the Americas now, which is by our Latin America editor, Barbara Pianese. And this is Nearshoring in Mexico could be an opportunity for banks. And so in this story, um, Mexico is emerging as a market best position to gain from so-called Nearshoring to the U.S., um, to date, the trend has not resulted in Mexico seeing the greatest available benefit. So economies from Asia as well as Canada have grown their share of U.S. market imports faster than Mexico, according to a BBVA research note. And the note also suggests that there have been trade flows have left China since 2018. The economy would have grown 1.42% annually instead of reality, which is it's contracted by 0.4%. Um and I just thought this was really interesting because, you know, we've seen so much production from China moving to its neighboring countries. You know, we've had the Vietnam story, we've had the Thailand story. But if you're looking at a market like the U.S., does it not make sense to have things closer to home? And also in the context as well of like the strained U.S. relationship with China and with Russia and sanctions as well at the moment. So what do you think this means in terms of, supply chains do you think that we're going to see more manufacturing closer to home especially for the big markets like the u.s uh yeah i think so for sure mm. because i just think it be it you know it reduces the environmental impact of the supply chain as well that's very important mm. that's what some um companies are starting to yeah. look at now um i think it's interesting for mexico because you think of uh nafta the north american free trade agreement mm. that happened in the 90s i think um, but that was that really had like all the all the uh, a lot of the manufacturing shifted, let's say, from Canada across down to Mexico. So there has been a lot of nearshoring uh, for a very long time. Um, I think for a lot of companies, obviously, what they're looking for is the, you know, a very low cost base yeah. to do their manufacturing um, and a, a very stable economy mm. uh, politically mm. as well and I think maybe you know Mexico maybe the U.S. has looked further afield uh, you know in the last couple of decades mm. uh, in order to get those lo low cost um, uh, uh, destination countries but then for manufacturing but then also that whole um, idea of like the, that political instability yeah. that it has been happening in, in Mexico for a while but mm -hmm. I do think now the whole idea of having those supply chains closer to home, you know, being, you know, just, you know, much closer uh, in proximity, I think that actually makes a, a big difference today. Mm -hmm. And I think that really shone through during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. But there's a lot of diversification of supply chains going on as well. Uh, so a lot of companies might want to have that nearshoring in Mexico, but then also still have you know, production being done in other countries, mm. um, Asia, maybe in Asia, etc. Yeah. It also depends where you're distributing your goods as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, as you say, the environmental aspect as well, moving on from the, the ESG bond story, mm. but that is such a huge consideration now as well. If you only have to move from Mexico to the US rather than transport all the way from Asia, it's a, mm. yeah, it's a big difference on the carbon footprint of certain products, definitely. 
Interesting. So now we're going to take a look now at a story written by Alia. So Alia, I'm going to turn to you now, which is HSBC's 35 million investment kicks off joint venture with trade shift. So to give a bit of an overview, the 1.5 trillion trade finance gap is a problem exacerbated by the difficulties that small and medium sized enterprise suppliers often face when trying to access financing. To address this, collaboration between banks and fintech companies can offer a best of both worlds solution as demonstrated in the new joint venture between HSBC and Nordic Fintech Trade Shift. So I'm going to turn to you now, Alia, to, to explain a bit more about this story, um, which I also believe was the most read story as well last week on the banker. So yeah, I mean, exactly. getting things up to Fantastic. a great start there. Thanks, Kimberly. <laughs> um, so yeah, as you mentioned, we know that the trade finance gap makes up about one and a half trillion dollars. So this venture is really about addressing that, mm -hmm. especially in terms of making it easier for SME suppliers to access financing. So HSBC is making this investment into trade shift across two stages. And initially, the partnership will focus on developing embedded finance solutions and financial services apps. So I spoke with Vinay Mondonka about this. He's HSBC's chief growth officer for commercial banking. And I think he summarizes this well by describing the venture as the best of a startup mindset alongside mm. the network and governance of a global bank. So ultimately, the partnership aims to build a deeply embedded customer experience where a more streamlined process is enabled in order to improve access to finance and simplify trading. Mm. Mm. Excellent. And Joy, I mean, talking about trade fin finance is not an unfamiliar topic for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like my view on this is anything that is really helping with trade finance is, mm. is a good thing. You know, it's kind of a perennial issue that there is something going on with trade finance in terms of either the lack of digitization or the lack of funds available to support it. So what, what are your kind of thoughts on innovations like this? I think it's great. And again, I think, you know, Vinay's comments was really uh, to the point, which is really about having that marriage between fintech and a big incumbent bank, mm. especially like HSBC, that has that global footprint. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's really good. Obviously, SMEs are sort of, uh, you know, completely overlooked. And, you know, if you think about any kind of trade finance, etc., um, I think that they are the ones that are left behind. So I think this is a really... Um, important step forward mm. and if it can make because the trade shift has that digitization down pat mm -hmm. and things so if it costs less for banks to actually onboard uh, um, small like SMEs uh, then in actual fact that they'll you know they'll be brought into the that whole financial system and be able to access um, things like uh, trade finance, but also supply chain finance, mm. etc. Mm. So going that last mile, I think, is has been the issue this whole yep. time. And if you think of SMEs, they're very different. Every SME has is very unique in that sense. Uh, and so the banks have had a difficult time serving them. But I think this is a step in the right direction. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. And on that note, we are going to move away from the banker and we're going to take a little look at some of the news stories over the last week that I've thought were quite interesting. So to start off with, I can't help but look at Asia and see what's happening there. <laughs> Go back to my own um, home, well, my own patch, not my home territory. Um, but, <laughs> but to begin with, there's a story that was on Nikkei Asia, which I thought was interesting, which was around China's property woes spread and international economic gloom. So last month, the Communist Party Party raised hopes of investors in the nationals in the nation's beleaguered property sector, issuing a pronouncement at the end of its July meeting that was widely interpreted as a sign of potential support for distressed developers. However, last week, the good feeling melted away as 
Country Gardens Holdings, one of the largest Chinese developers by revenue, said it had missed its August 7th deadline for making $22 million in coupon payments on two US dollar-denominated bonds. If the company fails to pay investors by the end of the 30-day grace period, it will, be, it will default in the securities, each with a face value of $500 million. And additionally, the company announced on Thursday last week that it would report a net loss of up to 55 billion yuan or $7.6 billion in the first half of the year. So issues in the Chinese real estate sector, property sector is not new. Yeah, you've written about this before. Yeah, but it's another one, Mm. you know, and there's a lot of concern and feelings of being unsettled I think around this but I think having written about this quite extensively for our top 1000 July issue of the magazine and talking to economists and people in China about their feelings you know there's not as much concern I think in some cases about what the slowdown actually is like maybe it's you know Chinese China's growth of double digits was never going to be kind of sustained forever however Things like this are causing concerns, both, I think, with Chinese investors and externally. So my question to the rest of the podcast panel here is <laughs> how worried do you think we should be about the slowing Chinese economy? Yeah, I I, I feel that the, the China we saw pre-pandemic has gone. Mm. Um, but ultimately, it still remains the largest consumer market in the world. And I think we're not just going to see a slower version of its former economy. It's going to be a different kind of new economy potentially slower still, but with new drivers and traits. And I know the World Bank recently reported that in order to tackle its slowdown, it's really going to require internal, bigger structural reforms. Mm. And I think, as you mentioned, in terms of its property area, these structural reforms could really address that and Mm. be part of not only building back the property market, but building back the economy as a whole. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I always just remember looking, like this was a few years back, that it was those... You know, that massive construction boom that mm. happened, um, uh, obviously way pre- pre-pandemic, etc. But that you would see these almost like a whole cities being built without anybody in them kind yeah. of thing. So maybe that level of expansion in terms of the property sector was not sustainable. Um, but at the same time, in terms of your question about, you know, the slowing of the Chinese economy, like that is going to be a, a major factor, I think, uh, this year, at the end of this year and, and maybe into 2024 as well. Mm. And of course, you know, China has been the growth engine yeah. of the world's economy. So having that slow down does, you know, have implications across mm. the world. Yeah, and I think there was so much expectation that when China reopened from the COVID restrictions, mm. it would cause this huge boom in demand and economic growth that would kind of be spread globally and everyone would benefit from Mm. it and because that didn't materialize a lot of people panicked a bit to be honest so things like this i'm sure are only going to be more warning signs about what might be further down the line not only for china but also globally yeah exactly cool so to move on to another point now we have looking at the ft for this piece which is ubs starts process of killing off Credit Suisse brand. So UBS has begun the process of killing off Credit Suisse's international brand, replacing signs of the collapsed bank's US headquarters and planning changes in other key offices according to people familiar with internal discussions. The Credit Suisse brand is being phased out globally, though it it may be retained in Switzerland if UBS sells its former rival's domestic business. 
So the Credit Suisse logos outside of the bank's New York head office in Madison Avenue and the lobby have been replaced with signs saying Credit Suisse AG, a UBS group company. And UBS, according to people familiar with the the story, say that um, they plan to replace these with their own logo in the coming months. And it could be also happening in Credit Suisse's London offices and Canary Wharf by September. And I mean, I think when credits everything happened with credit suisse it wasn't so much of a of a shock and it's something that i think we've covered before on this podcast but kind of the the end of the line for a brand like this you know it's a it's a brand that has 167 years of heritage do you know do you do you think that anyone will will miss this but also do you think there would have been a benefit actually to retaining the brand as part of the the wider ubs kind of world or would it just be that it was so kind of almost tainted by everything that happened that actually it's better to just kind of move on from it but it's so hard to because you know to make that kind of call I think Mm. for like a I think UBS has to do this Mm. I don't think they really have another choice Mm. and I think they're trying to um you know sort of sort out the acquisition as quickly as possible Mm. I think the longer it lingers on you know, the more difficult things get. Uh, so, you know, the same with other brands. They have decided which is the top brand and they mm. use that. So UBS is it. Um, I think people will miss the Credit Suisse brand. They mm. did have a very good brand across mm. the world until the more recent problems, obviously. Um, and so I think people will miss it. And you know, as you pointed out, it's 167 years. Right. But obviously those kind of things, <laughs> brands especially, uh, disip- can be disappear yeah. overnight. Um, so again, not so surprising. I'm not sure if there would be much of a benefit for UBS mm. specifically to mm. keep the Credit Suisse brand just because a lot of their business overlaps. Yeah. Right. And so you want to come in with a strong, you wouldn't have the two brands yeah. in the same market competing in that way. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me Mm. that this is happening. It doesn't surprise me in terms of the quickness that Mm. this is happening. Um, Yeah, Uh, but it is a shame in a lot of ways for Credit Suisse (laughs) and its history. The end of the end of a line of a brand, because I I thought it was interesting because obviously a lot of the the Credit Suisse business and the people and a lot of different aspects of it all being integrated into Mm. UBS. So. In an essence, they do still exist, but it's the actual, it's the brand, the brand recognition, the thing that's being mm. taken away. And I, I just found that so interesting that mm. that was being removed. But another point I was going to make before I move on to the next one was um actually where myself and Joy recording a, a video later, a, um, a preview for Cyboss. And we'll be discussing some of the um, tips for first timers at Cyboss. So I've come up with a little list, but one I, I thought maybe wasn't be an official one, but we'll fit on this one is... Make sure you get um, the little freebies and things from the stands because mm. last year I got a Credit Suisse um, notepad, which is like a little sticky post-it note thing, which is very useful. And I often take it from their stand. But obviously this year it won't happen so mm. because they're not there anymore. So it has inadvertently become a collector's item. So you never know when you're going to pick up <laughs> something incredibly rare at these things. <laughs> So on from that now, there's another story I wanted to just talk about, um, which I just, these things come up and I just kind of get kind of worried about them really. Um, And it's mainly to do with consumers and consumer protection. So this was a story that is very 
kind of UK-centric, but on the BBC News website, which was a Somerset woman loses £40,000 in online scam. <clears throat> so trading standards in the UK have been trying to help a woman who lost £40,000 in an online scam. So um, the lead officer uh, for, for Heart of the Southwest Trading Standards Office said that online cryptocurrency fraud is on the rise. So cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, any type of investment scam is big at the moment. People are trying to find a way to make quick, easy money because of the cost of living crisis. So the woman in Somerset um, invested in cryptocurrency because she believed it was backed by Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert, who is kind of a well-known personality in the UK as being someone who offers financial advice on kind of TV and online and things. And she thought that this had been backed by him. However, she said she was groomed by online scammers who took out several loans in her name. And, you know, these kind of things, my thought is, is there enough education out there to protect people from these kind of scams? And if not, what more can be done to protect them? I think there's, you know, there's the cryptocurrency space, there's such confusion people don't fully understand it and it's right for people to lose money like this and you know forty thousand pounds is like a huge sum of money you know mm. and i think later on i read in the story like she has to still pay the money back which is just devastating really if you mm. you know so i just thought what what do you think about if there is enough protection out there to help people to understand maybe the risks or what they're getting involved in mm. Yeah, I, I don't think there is. And I know that Martin Lewis, he's been fighting for years against fraudulent ads um, and specifically those which use his face and name mm. because scammers know that he's he's a trusted person in the mm. UK, as you said, and elsewhere. Um, he, I know he managed to successfully campaign to get the issue of scam ads into the government's online safety bill. Mm. But in essence, he describes that the policing of online scams and fraud in the UK is pretty much non-existent. Yeah. And, I, and I think mm. that is pretty much the case. Um, and sadly, I think we'll be seeing cases like this more and more, and we are seeing them more and more. So, um, yeah, it's it's a worrying environment to be in. Mm. Mm. I, I do think the banks have a role to play as well. And I know, obviously, crypto is not their area or anything. Um, but I know a number of the UK banks that, are re that have launched anti-fraud campaigns. Mm. Um, and even like UK Finance, etc., they have a, quite a big... Uh, anti-fraud campaign going on but I think it needs to go more mainstream mm. um, how do you do that and and also continually get those kind of messages from the bank to say you know um, what's going on actually which is why it's really important that the banks are able to share information yeah. between each other and then actually give you know those kind of hotline tips to to people because I think uh, like I think the thing that came out of that story as well is just because you know, people are facing a cost of li living crisis. Mm. How, you know, how can they solve that, you know, within their own means? Mm. That's why they're looking at, you know, different kinds of investments in order to increase their, you know, their spending money, etc. Mm. Um, I just think these, these things are, you know, coming together in a bit of a perfect storm mm. because it's also very easy now, you know, it's very automated um, like obviously it seems like this woman particularly was actually continually contacted by someone on the phone etc mm. so that wasn't automated but in general just every kind of like phishing email you get etc mm. it's just so easy for you know the the criminals to really target people yep. over and over and over again without much cost to their own selves right so mm. I think it's uh, yeah it's an ongoing battle and I don't think it will really ever end 
but I think again you know the, as long as the banks come together and I think that's also part of the what will be discussed at CYBOS mm. in, uh, in Canada in the coming in you know in a few weeks time really is the correspondent banking community coming together but really trying to figure out how to drive out things like money laundering fraud all of that kind of stuff from the system. Mm. And like last time I was on the podcast with Liz, there was a, a story we were talking about, which was um, payments being made um, from a bank account and the person who the, the money was leaving, the, the, the owner of the account, that's what I'm looking for, um, managed to go to court about that. And I think, you know, where banks have that kind of obligation of looking at you know the transactions that are going out mm. you know I'm, I'm sure we've all had times we've got a phone call from the bank like is this your mm. you mean to this tr transaction is this legitimate and these things happen but then you know in the case of this with loans being set up you know why wasn't there an alert around that maybe why wasn't like she notified mm. to say oh someone set up a loan with a different institution for example in your name why doesn't that get flagged mm. But that's the thing, isn't it? They yeah. should they should know that. Mm -hmm. And how is it that that's slipping through? Yeah. And again, I think that's something that the banks really need to look at as mm -hmm. well. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a murky world. It uh, needs to have a light shone on it. Definitely. Great. Well, that's everything for today covered up. So thank you again to Joy and Elia for joining me from the Banker Midweek. So you can listen to the Banker Midweek every week. Um, it goes live on Wednesday and you can find it on ACAST, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you find your podcasts. And if in the meantime you want to listen to some more podcasts, we've always got things going live. So I'm currently working on a new episode of Disruptive Voices, my podcast series, where I'm talking to women in the startup community. And the one we have most recently on the website is an episode of Functional Banking Magic by Liz Lumley. And in this latest episode, she's hearing the story of the first fully digital bank in Barbados, which is Sagicore Bank. So thank you very much and happy listening. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.